0: and give that a look, which will be an interesting study because there is no book of Hezekiah. <laughs> but he was a king in the Old Testament. We're going to do the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is all about leadership. It is about, uh, it is about uh, leading when life is difficult and leading when life is tough and leading when the odds are against you. And there is uh, a multitude of lessons out of the life of Nehemiah. So that's what we're going to do through the winter and spring. It's a wonderful study. And uh, this guy, Nehemiah, you may not be familiar with him now. But when we get done, uh, he's going to be one of your favorites in the scriptures. We're not building a wall, We're not building a wall, no. But, uh, but he did. And we'll, we'll find out principles, because you know, the, most of us, there's some broken down areas in our lives where some walls need to be rebuilt and where some work needs to be done. So that's, that's where we're going. Now, what we usually do. How many of you guys, this is the first time you've been at our Wednesday night study? see your hands. Hey, glad you're here. Yeah. Well, it's 500 bucks the first night.
1: <laughs>
0: then you come back as many times as you want. We take American Express. We yeah, we got a credit card. Yeah, we got this guy back here running a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> He's with Campus Crusade, so you support him, and I get a cut, and we got, we got all kinds of things going. I'm getting too weird here, and it's my first night. But what, what we're going to do is, uh, for you guys that are here for the first time, because we always have guys, we take some time to get to know each other. And uh, we just don't want you sitting here and wondering who everybody is and feel like a stranger. So the point is is to say hi to somebody you don't know. So let's go ahead and do that, get acquainted. You know the drill. A couple of sheets, let me grab those from you. Out here, in the back, we needed those sheets. If you didn't get the sheets, raise your hand and uh, we'll get them to you, because you're gonna need those for tonight. Yeah, there we go. We're gonna have homework? You know the women have homework. They got food over there too. You know what we ought to do? Let's give about let's 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 give it about five minutes, and they'll be in there, and then we'll go over there and eat the food. That'd be good. Since I know you guys didn't eat well over Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And those sheets, as you can see, uh, just hold on to those, and we'll uh, we'll commit those to memory tonight. Uh, you can do that. You won't have any problem with that. Um, I can't remember where my keys are. <laughs> you can't remember where your keys are? Yeah, I, I know what that's like. That's all right. Well, let's, uh, let, let's begin with prayer and then we'll jump into our study tonight. Father, we thank you for the seasons that you have instituted. Uh, we thank you for winter. Uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't live in severe winters, but we have a, a taste of it to make us appreciate it and the difference. Uh, then there's spring, and then there's summer, and it's long here, and then there's fall, not like uh, fall up north, but we get a taste of it. Uh, Lord, those seasons are, are part of the rhythm of life that you have instituted, um, and you instituted those things back during creation and there's the sun, and there's the moon. You created in, in six days, and you rested on the seventh. And here we are in another year, and this past one just flew. Uh, it didn't seem like 12 months. It seemed more like six months in that year. And we're right back into it again. We thank you, Lord, that as you were sovereign over this past year, you're sovereign over the year to come. Uh, we don't know what is ahead of us, we don't know what we will face, but you do. And uh, even in this past year, the events and circumstances that we experienced and, and uh, surprised us perhaps, uh, in your sovereignty, those were designed to prepare us for what will come this year. We thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're our Father who knows all things, who sees all things, you're developing us, you're patient, you're long-suffering with us, we have fallen short, we fail. You don't discard us. You pick us up. You encourage us. Uh, We're men that are in process. And as we begin this year, we ask, Lord, that we would have teachable hearts and teachable spirits. We pray that you would develop us. We pray that we would not just grow older this year, but we pray that we would grow up, that we would mature. So as we begin this study, we pray that you will teach us, that you will custom design this for each man. You know our circumstances, you know every guy, where he's coming from, what he dealt with today, what his financial circumstances are, what his uh, vocational status is. Uh, Some of us are out of work and we've been out of work for a while. Others of us, Lord, have been in the same position for so long, we're just bored. So we're at different places, but we have the same Lord. Uh, We want to focus on you tonight. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. i ask the ushers if they'll come forward. We'll receive the... No. I'm, I'm kind of strange tonight. I don't know what happened to me. I've had too much time off. This cold air, this clear air, I don't know what it does to me, but... I've got to be careful tonight. Um... I I like I like reading and I like to read uh in bed before I go to sleep because it helps me to uh get my mind off of the things of the day and to uh, to just get in that mode of shutting down. And recently I was reading a book that uh it was a history book. But the problem I had with it was that uh Actually, it's a pull-out book. Can I get get a couple of you guys to help me here? Uh, Why don't you go that way? And then you grab Chad, that part. And I'm probably going to need another guy here. Well, that was the problem. I went from the bedroom into the patio with this thing. In fact, let's, let's pick it up and go over... Back behind the podium, because we're, I think that's it. Well, what this is, is called the wall chart of world history. Uh, It was done in 1890 by Professor, I forget his name, Edward Hall. And uh, this is a fascinating chart. It's designed to be put on a wall, but in essence, what he has done is that he has recorded history uh, from creation all the way through down to where we are today. Uh, it's been updated and we have some 20th century leaders, 21st century we're now in. You've got uh, Einstein, you've got Gandhi, you've got JFK. But it is a fascinating, hey, hey Jim, can you hold this in and let me just kind of work through this thing. See these handouts I gave you tonight, you thought those were tough. <laughs> uh, imagine committing something like this to memory. Um, you guys just help me here for a minute. Uh, one of the greatest football games, I didn't see this game but I heard about it, was um, was one of the greatest playoff games ever. Uh, Babe Ruth was quarterback. And he was uh, in the fourth quarter. There were 20 seconds left. Uh, His team was down. He played for the New York Giants. And his team was down. And they were behind uh, the Ottawa Senators. And they were playing in this playoff game. And Michael Jordan ran. A pass route, an out pattern, about 18 yards. Babe Ruth hits him. Uh, He puts a juke on uh, Rod Laver, and and he took it into the end zone and scored. Now, that's totally idiotic, because Babe Ruth didn't play football, and neither did Michael Jordan, and the Ottawa Senators are a hockey team, and Rod Laver was a tennis player. Uh, That's mixing up your sports history. We tend to mix up Biblical history, because we don't totally understand it, and there's a lot of Biblical history, Uh, and it's kind of a mystery to us, because we're not sure where everything goes. Uh, Tonight, as we begin our study of Nehemiah, we're going to do an overview, because we need to understand that Babe Ruth didn't play football, and that Michael Jordan isn't a wide receiver, only we need to understand that biblically and understand how things work and understand that there's a flow of history now there's no way we can handle all this here tonight but I will say this to you right here is Jesus Christ on the cross that's the, uh, that's the central focus uh, of, of history we, we focus on the cross we're down here historically we look back to what Jesus did on the cross, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob looked ahead to a Redeemer who would come one day. Now these guys can't stand here and hold this for the next hour, so I'm going to let you guys just fold it up and um, we're going to turn to our chart. Because I want us to understand historically an overview before we jump into Nehemiah. And there's a reason we want to understand historically the overview. Uh, You should have a sheet. Thanks, Jim. You should have a sheet that says, an overview of Old Testament history. Uh, There are great charts in the Bible Knowledge Commentary that was published by the faculty at Dallas Seminary. And these charts come uh, from that volume. If you don't have the Old New Testament, uh, it's just essential. For your own Bible study. Uh, An overview of Old Testament history. Let's start. Let's start. uh, What year is this? 2003? All right. So we're 2003. We're 2,000 years after Christ. Uh, To really get our framework and to get our focus, we want to begin with a guy named Abraham. Now, in Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. In Genesis 1 through 11, you've got uh, the creation of the world. You've got Adam and Eve. Um, You've got um, got Cain. You've got Abel. Uh, You've got Noah. You've got the flood. Uh, You've got uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, In essence, in Genesis 1 through 11, God's dealing with the whole world. But beginning with Genesis 12, God starts to deal with one man, a guy named Abraham. Uh, Matt, why don't you stand up here? You'll be Abraham, okay? We're just kind of run through this. Now, Abraham shows up about 2,000 years before Christ. All right, then Abraham has a son. He has actually two sons. Who are his two sons? Who is it? All right, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the first one that wasn't the child of promise. Uh, But then Isaac shows up, and then Isaac had a son by the name of what? Jacob. Okay. Then Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, one of which was Joseph. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He uh, is in Egypt. He's in slavery. The whole world's going to go into famine. Uh, He's in a dungeon, you know the story about Joseph, Uh, but God raises him up in a remarkable way to become the number two man in all of Egypt. So then Joseph, uh, when this famine hits, is administrating all this food. His brothers show up, bring the father, and I'm just highlighting the story. He moves them up after scaring them a little bit. He moves them up, settles them in the land of Goshen, which was a suburban of Egypt. And uh, they're living there. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. They're there about 400 years. And then a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph, the scripture says, and he enslaves these people. They got a tough life. Um, I need a Joseph. All right, so we got Joseph right here. And then Moses shows up. And uh, Moses is uh, born at a time when Pharaoh was saying, No, little boys. Any boys that are born in Israel are going to be uh, thrown into the Nile, Uh, it's a terrible time to have a son. You know, a lot of times people say, you know, this is no time to bring a child into the world. You ever heard that? You know, it's never a good time to bring a child into the world. Because the world is always in sin, and the world is always fallen, the world is always broken. Uh, If Christian people don't have children, then the world is really in trouble. Because we're called to be salt and light. And we're called to raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're we're called to raise children and teach them the truth so they can be salt and light and make a difference in the culture. Moses was born at a really bad time. Uh, God protected him uh, at the age of three months. He was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. He winds up living in Pharaoh's household. Uh, His uh, mother is his nursemaid. It's an amazing story. Uh, So he grows up uh, really in line to be... Head of Egypt himself. Uh, but he realizes he's not there for his own well-being and for his own pleasure. And at the age of 40, he decides he sees all of his people. And they're in slavery. And they live a, a horrific life. And he decides, you know what, I'm, God put me here to help them. I'm the only guy in a position to set them free. So what did he do? He tried to pull off the Exodus by himself. He saw uh, one of his cousins being beat up by an Egyptian guard. He steps in, kills the guy. He thought his people would understand that that he was their deliverer, but they didn't understand. And suddenly, he's on the run for his life. He runs to a place called Midian. He's there 40 years. His hopes, dreams are dashed. He had a great opportunity. He blew it. He's a failure. And then one day, God speaks to him out of a bush. He says, I want you to go back, and I want you to deliver my people. So then you got Moses. I need a Moses. T, you're Moses. So then what happens? Well, then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of the unbelief of some of the men of Israel. Uh, They should have gone right into the promised land, but they didn't. They had to wander. Uh, Moses dies at the end of 40 years. Joshua takes over the leadership of Israel. They finally go into the promised land, although it took them 40 years. So they go into the land. They begin to occupy the land. If you guys were here for our study in Joshua, you know all about that stuff. Uh, Then what happens? What happened after they went in and took the land? What would come next? Uh, in your Bible, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, what? Judges. judges. Then came a period of the judges. It was a time of moral deterioration. The nation was falling apart morally. The, uh, all the way through the book of Judges, you have uh, the phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes. If uh, Today, we call that postmodernism, That's what our culture is about. Our culture, postmodernism is there is no absolute truth. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. Uh, Isn't it interesting uh, what goes around comes around? Uh, Hegel said, history teaches us that men never learn from history. What we're dealing with today is what they were dealing with in the time of Judges. So you got the time of Judges. And then what happens, right about around, now Abraham is 2,000 years before Christ. Then you get to the year right about 1,000 years later. So, a thousand years before Christ, Israel gets their first king. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. I needed Saul. Okay, Ron, you're Saul. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel. He was a uh, a good-looking guy. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, a little facelift, you'd be fine, man. He was a uh, he was a good-looking guy, big guy, stood head and shoulders over everybody. He looked like a king. He looked like a leader. He looked like, I mean, if he were to walk in here, we'd gravitate towards the guy. He just looked like a stud. He looked like he knew what he was doing, but he didn't. Uh, He had the external shell, but he didn't have anything inside. Every time he had a a test of his leadership, um, he he blew it. He's what I call a synthetic leader. Uh, He didn't have a heart for God. Um, Synthetic leaders look good on the outside, but they don't have what it takes inside. Um, They might say in Texas, big hat, no cattle. He looked the part, but he didn't have it. That was Saul. Uh, After after dealing with Saul and and Saul's disobedience, God gets another king, a guy by the name of David. David was a man, the Bible says, who was a man after God's own what? After the heart of God. David wasn't perfect. David wasn't without his flaws. But David loved God, and he loved God deeply. So so, you got Saul, then you got David. After David, David rules and reigns for 40 years. Then he has a son who takes over for him by the name of Solomon. Solomon asks God to give him wisdom. God gives him wisdom. He's the wisest man on the face of the earth. Not only does God give him wisdom, but because he didn't ask for riches, God gave him riches. Um, what, uh, what Solomon does is that Solomon, uh, his, his dad, had, had begun the process of getting ready to build the temple. And kind of doing the general contracting and getting all the construction guys and the lumber guys all together so that Solomon could take off. David wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him because he was a man of bloodshed. So he dies, that goes to Solomon, and Solomon's going to build this temple that was unbelievable. So he builds it. Um, but his heart begins to wander from God, because he goes after foreign women. He, uh, you know, his dad, his dad had more than one wife. Deuteronomy 17, 17 said that the king of Israel was not to multiply wives. He was not to have more than one wife. Well, David violated that. Uh, and you know how sons always try to outdo fathers. Uh, Old Testament scholars, there's, there's some question about how many wives David actually had somewhere between 8 to 12. Solomon comes along and Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean this guy was exhausted. (laughs) That's a lot of women but that's how many he had. Uh, Solomon was one of those guys who started strong but he didn't finish strong. It's One of those sobering one of the sobering things about reading the Old Testament is how many men started strong who didn't finish strong. And you know what's interesting? The guys who tended to fail, they failed in the second half of life. How many of you guys are 35 or above? Raise your hand. You're high risk. You're high risk because you're in the second half of life. That's when most guys tend to make serious flaws spiritually. Because you've been walking with Christ a long time and we begin to get uh, confident and we begin to get secure and we think we're okay. That's when the enemy strikes. That's when he uh, will, will prepare an ambush for us. So we've got to be on our guard. So, you've got Saul, David, you've got Solomon. First three kings. Now, what happens is Solomon dies, and his son, by chance, anybody know who follows him? Which son? Rehoboam. Rehoboam follows his dad. Rehoboam, uh, couldn't have, couldn't have got off on a worse start. Because in order to show people how tough and how strong he was, he decided he was going to put a tax on them that was just absolutely stifling. And the people said, hey, you, you can't do this. This isn't going to work. And he basically said, hey, listen, you think my dad was tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. And, and his counselors were a bunch of young guys who didn't know what they were doing. And it was such a bad move that there was rebellion. And what happened was, when Rehoboam made that move on the taxes. People couldn't stand it and the nation actually had a, had a rebellion and there was a guy by the name of Jeroboam who rose up and who challenged and, and what happened was there was a, basically a civil war and the nation split. That's what happened. I'm going to let you guys sit down. Thanks. Appreciate it. So but don't forget these guys. started with Abraham 2,000 years before. Then in the 1,000 years we've got Saul. Then you've got David. Then you've got... Solomon then you've got Rehoboam, but then what's going to happen is the nation is going to split now This is a big deal and you kind of want to get you want to get this in your head So right after Solomon his son takes the throne and now the nation is going to split into the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom Ten tribes go north and they're called Israel the tribe that stays in um, In the south which is called Judah is basically Judah and Benjamin So you got the nation divided as we divided between North and South in the Civil War. This was a huge deal. Uh, This was never never the plan. Israel was to be be united. But uh, these were spiritual issues that divided the two nations. So you've got Israel in the North, you've got Judah in the South. Now, if you track on your sheet, you're going to follow this. And here's what you're going to see. You're going to see that the kingdom is divided in 931. The northern kingdom, which is Israel, they last about 209 years. Now, you want to do a fascinating study. In the Old Testament, you can read Kings and you can read Chronicles. It will tell you about the kings that ruled in Israel and in Judah. The kings that ruled in the northern kingdom, every single one of them was wicked. There wasn't a good king in the lot for 200 years. Godless, wicked men. The nation began to crumble from the inside out. Um, They they began to to, uh, take on the religions of the ites that were around them. They began to intermarry. They began to uh, sacrifice their children in the fire, throw their children in the fire, and the, the music would drown out the screams of these infants. Uh, these, these religions were sexual in nature, uh, homosexuality was rampant, uh, uh, bestiality, all these unimaginable things the people of Israel who knew the true God, they got into because their leadership got into. So this went on for 200 years. Now, there's a key chapter. You guys still with me? Yeah. You still tracking with me? Yeah. See, history's fascinating. Most of us don't know that because we learned history from uh, our baseball coach in high school who didn't give a rip about history. He just wanted to win the state championship. So he was just there marking time. See, when, when you look at history, uh, history is incredible. Now, we're going to study Nehemiah. And you're thinking, all right, well, what's this got to do with Nehemiah? It's got everything to do with Nehemiah. It's got everything to do with you and me. Because you see, you, you remember that chart we had out here? You know what? Nehemiah is in that chart, and Abraham was in that chart, and David's in that chart, and guess who else is in that chart? You're in that chart. And I'm in that chart. And your kids and your grandkids are in that chart. How long will it be before Jesus comes back? We don't know. We hope it's soon. But it could be 50 years, it could be tonight, it could be another 500 years, we don't know. We're in that chart. And it's all interconnected, and it's all tied together. Now, let me just kind of time out here real quick. In Deuteronomy 28, back during the time of Moses, God said to the men of Israel, and Deuteronomy 28 is a pivotal chapter. He said to the men of Israel, if you obey me, if you love me, I'll bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'll give you cities you didn't build. I'll give you orchards you didn't plant. I'll give you uh, cisterns you didn't dig. I mean, God was going to pull up a dump truck and dump his favor and goodness and kindness on these guys. He promised it to them. That's the first part of Deuteronomy 28. The second part of Deuteronomy 28, he says, but if you don't obey me, I'll curse you. And those curses will send a shiver down your spine to read them. Uh, A horrible list of things that God would do to them if they disobeyed. And you know what these guys basically chose to do? They chose to disobey God. So, God warned them. God sent the prophets. God was merciful. God tried to reason with them. God was compassionate. God showed his grace. um, And they stiffed him. Just, just Just like a running back... On a sweep, going around, a linebacker comes up and boom, just shivers the sucker right in the chops. That's what the men of Israel basically did to God. Who loved him, who was their father. They just kept ignoring him. They just kept stiffening him right in, the, right in the chin. So what happens is in the northern kingdom, after 209 years of wickedness, 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 sacrificing babies, all this stuff, God sends a nation in by the name of Assyria. Assyria was the toughest nation in the world. They were the big dogs militarily. What Assyria loved to do when they conquer a city was they'd take the leaders and they'd cut off their heads and then out in front of the city gates they'd stack a pyramid of human heads of all the leaders of the, of the city that they had just conquered. And they'd just keep them out there. Uh, people were afraid of the Assyrians. Well, God sent the Assyrians in to take the northern kingdom. And what was that, 781 that took place? What is it? Yeah, 722. All right, 722, that's when the northern kingdom went out of existence. Assyria took them over. Now, some of them made a run to go down to the southern kingdom, but the vast majority of them were taken over by Assyria, and they basically came to an end. Now, the southern kingdom is still moving, and they're still going along. And what happens in the southern kingdom was mostly bad kings, but every once in a while you get a good king. Every once in a while. Um, not a lot of good kings, but here and there you get a good king. Uh, you'd have Asa. You'd have uh, uh, Amaziah. It was said of Amaziah that he did what was right. that uh, Amaziah loved the Lord, but not with a whole heart. Even Amaziah had some issues, you see. And, and, and so historically, you got some good kings, you got some bad kings. You'll have a good king, Hezekiah. Then he has a son named Manasseh, who was the worst king. And then uh, he had a son that was terrible, but then he had a son by the name of Josiah, who was the greatest king who ever lived. Because it was love for God. Well, basically, the southern kingdom lasts longer than the northern kingdom. But what happens is, in 586, Babylon comes in, and they take the southern kingdom, Judah. And they head to Babylon, 800 miles away. Now, this is where Daniel comes in. This is where Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that, that, that would be their Babylonians' names. You know, when we read the book of Daniel, these guys were young teenage guys whose lives were completely uh, demolished because they lived in Jerusalem, they're Jews, and suddenly the Babylonians come in and they're taken off to get a new language, a new culture, to get a new education, to get new names. Um, they're taken into captivity. Now, how long are they in captivity? They're in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. What's interesting is that in the Old Testament, one of the things that God told Israel is that they were to observe the Sabbath day. But there was also a Sabbath year. Did you know that? Uh, In Israel, every seventh year, they were not to work the land. They were to trust God that in the sixth year, God would give them enough of a crop to get them through the seventh year where they didn't plant, and then to get them on into the harvest of the eighth year, which would be the next time they'd have food come in. Uh, they could never trust God to obey him. For 490 years, they didn't trust God. They refused to obey him on the Sabbath year. They were taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, which interestingly enough, you take 490 years and figure out how many Sabbath years they ignored, How many would that be? Seventy. So God got his Sabbath years. You know the old commercial, you can pay me now? Or you can pay me later. So 70 years, they were on a sabbatical in Babylon. Okay, now, you you guys getting the flow of this a little bit? You still with me? Okay. Now, here's where we start to run in uh, to where we're going to study this winter and spring. Because, see, they had been in exile in Babylon, the southern kingdom. But now what's going to happen is they're going to start coming back to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem wasn't much to come back to because when the Babylonians came in, you know that incredible temple that Solomon built? It's the greatest structure in the whole world. In fact, the scripture tells us that the queen of Sheba, who was uh, filthy rich, the prosperity in her life was, was... was unbelievable. She'd heard about Solomon. And uh, she took a trip to see Solomon and see his temple. And the scripture says that when she saw it, when he showed her what he had done, uh, there was no spirit left in her. She was absolutely demoralized because, I mean, what, she was like a pauper compared to what Solomon had done. Uh, she said, the half had not been told to me about this place. Uh, and she gave glory to the God of Solomon. Uh, that temple was unbelievable. But it was absolutely ransacked and destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, the, the, the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. I mean, this place, which had been the most beautiful city, it was, uh, it was, it was legendary, was absolutely in ruins. It, it, you've been to slums. You've seen these, uh, these housing projects uh, that have been forgotten and broken, and uh, there's no money to repair them. Uh, that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. I'm reading a, a, a biography of Booker T. Washington. Uh, he had a white father and a black mother. His mother was a slave. And uh, where they lived, this little town in which they lived, uh, the thing he always remembered about it was the stench. It was, uh, he had to work in salt pits as a kid. And the, the stench of that town, and the stench of the open sewers, as, as long as he lived, and all the amazing things that that man did uh, for, his, for his people, and the education that he brought them, and, and the faith that was based in Jesus Christ, as long as he lived, he never forgot the stench of that broken-down uh, town that he lived in. That's the way Jerusalem was. This is where... This is where God begins to do something, and he begins to send a remnant back to Jerusalem, and this is where Nehemiah comes in. In fact, there are a couple books that come into play here. You've got Ezra, and you've got Nehemiah. You've also got the book of Esther that's tied in here. Now, get your chart. Uh, get that other chart, if you would. Um, The one that says the the three returns from exile. You see that chart? Um, And and that chart begins on the left with an arrow that says captivity. And they were in captivity 70 years. Um, The thing we have to understand as we look at history is that history is his story. God owns history. God owns the world. God owns the universe. Uh, Thomas Watson said, God's center is everywhere, His circumference nowhere. That's pretty darn good. God's center is everywhere, His circumference nowhere. You can't limit Him. He's finite. Uh, You take all the universe, you take all the galaxies, all the solar systems, You can't exhaust him, you can't get to the end of it. He contains that all within himself. He owns it, he invented it. He owns time, he owns history. He's taking history to a culmination. He's taking it to a point. Uh, He's got a plan for history as he has a plan for you and he has a plan for me. We're just not here by chance. We're just not here to put in our time and live and breathe and have a good time. He's got something specific in mind for you and for me. Even the difficult things we've been through. Even the hard times. He is using those things in our lives for a purpose because he owns history and he owns us. When we get into Nehemiah, what we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna pick up some lessons in Nehemiah. And, and again, tonight's an introduction. Uh, and, and Nehemiah is going to be a lot about leadership. But there are some principles in Ezra and in your Bible, it's Ezra, and then it's Nehemiah. It used to be, it used to be a long time ago, in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, that those two books, in, in essence, were the same book. But at a point, they were divided because of the two men. But in essence, they go together, Ezra and Nehemiah. What we're going to see in, in these books is that as they come out of Babylon into Jerusalem, um, this great city that had lost its luster, that was absolutely destroyed and devastated. We're going to see some things in this book about the sovereignty of God. Um, You know, in a sense, the Bible is about the sovereignty of God. The Bible is about the fact that God is big and we're not. The Bible is about the fact that God is the creator and we're the creatures. How old are you? 30 40, 60 70 80 uh, my dad my mom and dad were here over Christmas just went back this week my dad will be 80 uh, in June 80s a, that's a good stretch and he's hoping to have more and, and he's in pretty good shape so 80 uh you know, um, certain things were true before you existed. You were aware of that? Certain things were true before your grandfather existed, before your great-grandfather. Certain true things were true before Alexander the Great existed. What I'm saying is that God has always been. God has always been there. One of the things about Christianity, is that uh, we talk about Jesus and who Jesus is. Uh, The Apostles' Creed tells us about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Steve Green uh, sings a song based on the Apostles' Creed. And he talks about Jesus. um, Gosh, I just lost the line. Um, Jesus, he says, existing uncreated before the world began. Did you catch that? Existing, uncreated. Well, where, Where'd God come from? You ever think about that when you were a kid? Where'd God come from? You ever have your, your kids ask, hey, Dad, where, where'd God come from? He's always been. Yeah. And in my mind, I'd always try, okay. And I'd think back as far as I could. Okay, he's always been, he's always been, he's always been. But where'd he come from? <laughs> well, he's always been. Existing, uncreated. That can't be. Yes, it can. He's God. He's not a, So God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is running the show. Uh, as R.C. Sproul has said, in God's universe, there's not one maverick molecule. Ephesians 1.11 says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. I want to give you some shots. Ch- and you say, well, we're not even in Nehemiah yet. Yeah, but we're getting close. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like. In fact, turn to Ezra. Now, I'm going to give you a few minutes to find this stuff. Because uh, we're not, if, you're, if you can find Psalms kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, go left. All right? If you get to Chronicles, you're too far. Go back to the right. And you're going to come to, uh, you're going to find Ezra. <clears throat> and then you're going to find Nehemiah. Um, I want to give you some shots tonight on the sovereignty of God. Now, what we've looked at in, that, in this timeline here, we've, we've, looked at the, we've looked at Israel. Because Israel came out of a guy named Abraham. The nation of Israel are the descendants of Abraham. And in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God said to this guy Abraham, he, said, he basically made a covenant with him. And, and it involved the land. I'm going to give you the land, which is the land of Israel. That's why all this stuff is going on in the paper right now about the West Bank and all that jazz. Uh, this all goes back to what God said to Abraham. He was going to give him the seed, which he was going to give him a son, and he was going to give him descendants, so many that they were more than the stars, uh, and he was going to bless him. That's why it says in Genesis 12 that uh, God said, Whoever blesses you, Abraham, then will I bless. That's why I think as long as the United States continues to bless Israel, God will bless us. We stop blessing Israel? Let me tell you something. You don't want to be an anti-Semite. A lot of people associate anti-Semitism with Christianity. Christianity has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Jesus Christ was a Jew. You're an anti-Semite and you're a Christian. You're against your Lord and Savior. There's something wrong with you. There's something not computing. God has a plan for Israel. They're the descendants of Abraham. Um, My first point is this. And by the way, Nehemiah was a Jew, so as we get ready to study Nehemiah, we've got to understand, here's my first point, is that God is sovereign over Israel. Right Now, Israel was in captivity, and if you see your chart, there's an arrow there that says, captivity, 70 years. They were in Babylon. Well, here's what happened. And once again, I ask, are you guys still with me? All right, so Babylon took over Israel. Babylon were the big boys on the block. But then a new guy came up the road, and he got tougher and he got stronger. No matter how tough you are, there's always somebody who's tougher. You know, there's nobody who can take Sonny Liston. You guys are old enough, you remember that. You saw that picture of him in Sports Illustrated. There's no way Cassius Clay could take that sucker. Well, he took him. There's no way anybody can take Tyson. He'll bite you to death. (laughs) But he's been taken a number of times now. And that's just the way it goes. Nobody can take Joe Lewis. Well, somebody took Lewis. There's always somebody coming down the road. The Babylonians were the big boys on the block. Before them, there were the Assyrians. But now there's a guy who shows up, and he comes in, and he takes the Babylonians, and this guy's name is Cyrus. Now, you know what's wild when I say God is sovereign over Israel? uh, Turn with me to Isaiah chapter, I think it's 43. You know, there's this, we've talked about this some. There's this teaching going around evangelical circles now called open theism. And open theism teaches that God doesn't know the future. We're not sure where they got that because they didn't get it from the Bible. But that's what, um, that's what uh, open theists teach. They're really not concerned about what the Bible says. They just want to come up with their own theology and make God fit what's comfortable for them. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 44, actually, I'm sorry, in verse 28, the prophet Isaiah says, and, and this is God, if you look at verse 24, it says, thus says the Lord, and then down in 28, it says, it is I, the Lord, who says of Cyrus, God says, Cyrus is going to rebuild this stuff. Verse 45 says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. That, that term literally is Messiah. Not meaning he's the Messiah of Israel, but that he was going to function as, at a certain period of time as a savior. He was going to do something for the nation of Israel. Uh, go down uh, to, verse, um, to verse 13. Speaking of Cyrus, he says, I have aroused him in righteousness I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So God says, this is what I'm going to do with Cyrus. You know what's interesting about this? Cyrus wasn't born yet. Cyrus wouldn't show up for 150 years. So don't tell me God doesn't know the future. God said there's going to be a king that's going to show up by the name of Cyrus. 150 years from now, he's going to be the one that's going to deliver my people out of Babylon and send them back to rebuild Jerusalem. Go to Second Chronicles 28. That's back to your left. That's just prior to. Uh, that's just prior to Ezra. Actually, it's Second Chronicles 36. <clears throat> It says in uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and he also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth. He has appointed me. Catch this. He has appointed me 150 years before I was born to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Uh, Even when Judah, uh, even when Israel was at its worst condition, God was sovereign over their well-being and over their lives. Uh, The nation was destroyed. The nation was devastated. Uh, They were wiped out. Sometimes in life, we think we're finished. Some of you guys have been there. Uh, some of you guys know what it is to think you're finished financially. You know what it is to be absolutely wiped out, cleaned out. You know what it is to be bankrupt. And when that happens, I mean, everything you work for is over, done. I mean, the best years of your life are down the tube and down the toilet. That's where Israel went. Uh Sometimes uh, in our vocations. Uh, we get the rug pulled out from under us. Uh, we're cruising. We're doing well. We're on top of our game, and then something will happen. There will be a downturn. Uh, there will be massive layoffs. You're 50 years old. They're not hiring guys that are 50 years old. They're going to hire some guy that's 28 years old. Pay him a lot less money. He's hungry. A kid will work 20 hours. You want to sleep 20 hours. No, you don't. you still got all kinds of energy, and you still got all kinds of vitality. But you know how it works, you see? And we can, we can get this idea, and, and that's where some of you guys are. You think, you know what? My best days are behind me. I'm finished. That's where Israel was. I mean, they were in deep trouble. Charlie Dyer, some of you guys know Charlie. He was at Dallas for a long time. He's now up at Moody. Uh, Charlie writes this about, about where Israel was when they were in captivity and coming out of captivity. He says, at stake was the very possibility of the continuation and fulfillment of the promises made to David that his royal descendants and the nation over which they were to rule would never end. Um, Though there were superficial resemblances to a nation, cracks were beginning to appear in the national and religious entity of Israel. Fissures were beginning to appear that signaled the likelihood of total and complete disintegration unless radical steps of reformation could soon be put into place. Israel was finished. They were done. They were broken. They were broken spiritually. They had no power. They had no authority. They had no leader. I mean, they were finished. Their city was in ruins. Their temple was destroyed. I mean, it was over. It was done. But Then God raised up three guys. We'll get to that in a minute. So my first point is God is sovereign over nations because they were in Babylon. God raises up Cyrus, prophesies about Cyrus, 150 years before Cyrus is alive, and says, Cyrus, you're going to deliver my people, and you're going to send a remnant back, and and you're going to rebuild the temple, and you're going to provide the money. And he did it. That's just like God. See, what God loves to do is that God likes to take broken people, that have lost everything, that are devastated, that are without hope, that have lost all resources, that have no network, that have no resume. And then God loves to come in and he loves to rebuild. And when, God, and when you're that low and when you're that uh, uh, stripped, and then when, when God begins to give you his favor and you begin to, to ascend again, and you begin to be productive, and you begin to be respected, things you thought would never happen. When that happens, when you've been that low, and God begins to bless you, who gets the glory, and who gets the credit? God does. We're a nation of self-made men. Boy, is that ever a crock. There's not a self-made man in this room. Anything you have, Deuteronomy says, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. There's nothing hot about you. And if you think there is, you're really in trouble. You've way overestimated yourself. And God can give you an instant tutorial real quick. He'll just take it all away from you. He'll just strip it from you. Like he did with Herod. Remember in Acts? Herod's up front. All the people says, oh, he's a God. He's a God. He didn't give glory to God. God kills him. Just takes him. None of us in here are self-made men. Now, I know you worked hard and I know all that kind of stuff. But you know, what? who gave you the brains, who, who gave you the stuff to be able to think about how you could work and how you could strategize? God gave you that. Everything we have comes from Him. He's sovereign. The gifts that you have, the contacts you've made, the key people that have come into your life at certain times, that's God who is behind that. He's got His eye on you. When we begin to take credit, that's when we're in trouble. God is sovereign over nations. Here's the second thing. God is sovereign over kings. He's sovereign over kings. We just seen he was sovereign over Cyrus. The book of Esther kind of fits in here. Um, The book of Esther, see Ezra and Nehemiah go together. The events in the book of Ezra kind of fit in between Ezra six and Ezra seven. And this is the king that came before um, the king that, that sent Ezra and Nehemiah back. We got a chart. There's another chart here. You guys, am I boring you guys? No. Okay, because this is going get boring. I and mean, what are you going to say? Yeah, I'm bored. I mean, you could say that. And I wouldn't blame you. Um, go to that chart that says the chronology of the post exilic period. What does that mean? Well, post is after. So they were in exile in Babylon, right? For 70 years. You don't have that chart? All right. Well, then let let me just do this for you. The guy, the first king that shows up and sends him back is Cyrus. And then you got about three or four other kings. And then there's a guy named Xerxes. He's also known as Ahasuerus. He's the king that is uh, the key guy in the book of Esther. And then, after him, you've got a king by the name of Artaxerxes I. He is the guy that actually sends Ezra and sends Nehemiah back uh, to do the work in Jerusalem. Okay? So Cyrus, then you got Xerxes, then you've got Artaxerxes. Um, if you're familiar at all with the story of Esther, you understand that God is sovereign over kings. That king had absolute authority. Um, Through providential circumstances, you know, God's name is never found in the book of Esther. Did you know that? But his his fingerprints are all over the book. Um, By providence, Esther becomes queen. Uh, She's raised by her uncle Mordecai, but Mordecai said, don't reveal the fact that you're a Jew. And she didn't. There was a guy in the kingdom, a guy by the name of Haman who was a classic bureaucrat, a classic brown noser. And he made it to the top. He was the number two guy in the kingdom. Uh, And he loved being, he he loved it. He loved the limo. He loved the Learjet. He loved the whole thing. And uh, he was a big man. And whenever he walked through the streets, people would bow. Everybody would bow to him except Mordecai, Esther's uncle. And it hacked him off. And he found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And he was going to get this sucker. And so he trumps up this legislation and he gets with Dashel and he gets with Gephardt and all these guys and, and they, they get this deal going and they decide, uh, that's in the Hebrew of course, <laughs> and they decide they're going to do this legislation that basically is going to take care of the, and I shouldn't say that because it was going to exterminate the Jews and that's, anyway, I, I crossed a the line there, I shouldn't have said that, but these guys, these bureaucrats, And however that system worked, these guys devised a law to not only exterminate, to get rid of Mordecai, but to get rid of all the Jews all over the world. Um, So this is a crisis deal. Um, uh, Mordecai gets word to Esther of what's going on. And uh, her life's on the line because she's a Jewess. And Mordecai reminds her of some things that. that she's not there by accident. Uh, that she was raised up for such a time as this. And she said, well, if I perish, I perish. Because she, she could talk to the king, but if she went into the king without being summoned and it displeased him, she could die. Anyway, she pulls off this deal where she's going to have a banquet. She goes into the king. He says, come on in. Your answer her favored. What can I do? I'm going to throw a banquet. I'd like you to come and Haman. Haman can't believe his good luck. I mean, he's in tight. Nobody else except the king, queen, and him. I mean, he just can't believe it. He tells his wife about it and his friends, and they say, this is great. And, and by the way, Haman wouldn't bow to him after he was invited to the banquet, hacked him off again. He mentioned it. And they say, build the gallows and just hang that guy. So he does. Uh, he builds the gallows. He, uh, the same night that he decides to build the gallows, the same night the king can't sleep. Just by chance. There is no chance. Is there? Uh-uh. There's no chance. Chance doesn't exist. Scripture says the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. God controls kings and presidents and prime ministers, he controls them. Just like you control the water in your yard. No problem. No sweat. Isaiah says, he raises them up, he sets them down. He blows on them, and they wither. Talking about the rulers of the world. He has a dream. He can't sleep. Satellite's out. What's he going to do? He says, bring in the royal records. So they bring That's all you can do back then. You just read the records. And they're reading a section about where there was a plot to assassinate him. And guess who found out about it? Mordecai. Mordecai warns the FBI. They come in. Say, so, hey, there's a plot. They arrest the guys. They take care of them. And he's hearing this. He goes, hey, man, I didn't know about it. He said, what would we ever do for Mordecai? We didn't do anything for him. He said, well, we need to do something for him. What should we do for Mordecai? I mean, he guy saved my life. Just then, Haman walks in, by chance. <laughs> and he goes, hey, Haman, let me ask you something. If there was somebody I really wanted to honor, if there was something I really wanted to go overboard for, I mean, I really wanted to take care of him, what the heck should I do? Haman, thinking he meant him, who else would he want to honor except me? Ammon says, you know what I'd do, king? I'd get a white horse. I'd get a stallion. I'd put him on it. I'd parade him through the streets. He said, man, that's a great idea. You go get Mordecai and put him on the horse, and you lead him through. I love that story. Kings, hey, guys, kings have authority. Let me ask you something. Who's in authority over you that's against you? somebody at work you got a family issue somewhere and see we tend to think that our well-being and we tend to think our destiny is in their hands your destiny is not in their hands your destiny is in the hands of almighty God first uh, pastorate that I had little tiny church I'd been a youth pastor in a big church. A big church that wasn't doing too well, that had some real leadership issues. And um, the guy who was a senior pastor was a good man, but he was a pleaser. He couldn't take a stand. He tried to please everybody all the time. Um, there had been a situation where there was a kid in the youth group who was an incredible troublemaker. I had to talk to him. I had to talk to him. I had to go get his dad, talk to his dad, et it, it, it had happened a number of times. And there was a face off. And I basically had to draw a line. Um, they went and appealed to the senior pastor, brought me in. We're talking. He says to me, I want you to apologize to this boy. I said I'm not apologizing to him his father says you owe him an apology I said I don't owe him an apology you owe him an apology for not raising him right but I'm not apologizing and I and I said I won't tell you his name but I said you know what I'm done I'm finished and you should have backed me up and you didn't so I left now I'd been talking with the church about this little time she'll come and be a pastor well the next the next night or Two nights later, they call me. We want you to come. There's just one thing left that we need to do. I said, what's that? We'd like to talk to the senior pastor at your church. And I saw my life pass before my eyes. I'm 27 years old. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I said, okay. I said, here's his number. And I knew I was going to get raked over the coals. I guy said, I'll talk to him and I'll call you back. Hour went by, two hours went by. Three hours went by. But this is not looking good. (laughs) About a quarter to twelve, the phone rang. And it was the elder from this church that I was talking with. And he said, well, I talked with him and he told me this and this and this and this and this. And my spirits were sinking every time he said this. I thought, well, this is it. It's over. It's done. And then he said, but you know, none of that adds up to me. It makes no sense to me. He said, I can't follow his thinking, and I can't follow his logic. He said, I, I, don't, I don't know the situation, but something's not right there. Uh, and I've talked to the other guys, and we'd like you to come as pastor. I learned a lesson that night. Um, You let God fight your battles. Your destiny is in the hands of Almighty God. It's not in the hands of anybody else. Can I give you another shot? Can you guys go one more? Kind of warm in here, isn't it? There's a lot of hot air in here. (laughs) You see, sometimes we think there are people in our lives that are going to make the final decision about where I'm going in life. No, they're not. God controls them. They're pawns in his hand. They will do what he instructs them to do, and they will do it thinking it's them all the time. And it is them. But see, he just directs them. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is going to get you where he wants you to be. And I actually have four more points, but I'm not going to hit them all. So let me find, yeah, here's a third one. In, in in Nehemiah and in Ezra, we see the sovereignty of God over leaders. And I'm actually going to give you one more after this. The sovereignty of God over leaders. When Israel was at its lowest point, God had three men that he had been preparing. The nation was devastated. The talent pool was shot. Uh, the resources were gone. The credit rating was zip. Uh, the army was gone, the national treasury was gone, the, the economy. I mean, these guys had nothing. But you know, God is always in the process of making his leaders. Uh, there were three men that God used when it was time for them to get out of captivity and go back. The first guy, and he's mentioned in the early chapters of uh, uh, Ezra, is a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Okay? And you can read about Zerubbabel in, uh, in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 2, 50,000 exiles, 50,000 exiles back to Jerusalem. And what they did was they rebuilt the temple. So here is a man preserved. He lived through this difficult time in another country. Who knows what experiences he'd been through to prepare him for this leadership? Who knows what disappointments? Who knows what heartbreak? Because usually when God prepares a man for leadership, that's what the guy goes through. He goes through some disappointment. He goes through some hard times. He goes through the fire because fire is what God uses to make a man and to make a leader. So the first guy is Zerubbabel who's going to rebuild the temple. On your other chart, you got the one that says the three returns from exile? So you've got Zerubbabel, who rebuilds the temple. Then you got a gap of 57 years. And then you've got a guy named Ezra. What does Ezra do? Ezra goes in and reinstitutes the law, or the word of God. Uh, the word was central to the ministry of Ezra. Look, if you would, um, at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Because what he did, these people are going back. The nation's devastated. I'll tell you what happened after the exile, after they'd been in captivity for 70 years. Um, it kind of cured them. Uh, it kind of cured them for a while of idolatry. Uh, they they had taken the acid bath, and they had learned some things. In in Ezra 7, we we read about. The the ministry of Ezra and the law or the word of God. And look how God had developed Ezra for this leadership role. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. You know, there's men who teach the word of God, but not every man who teaches the word of God practices the word of God. There's an incredible scandal going on in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I would say this to you, first of all. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't teach the Word of God. They teach the tradition of a system. But there are huge integrity issues. People have been betrayed. People have been destroyed. Uh, communities have been absolutely devastated by this sexual abuse. This, this. Uh, this network of pedophiles in the name of religion. That's a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, there are evangelical churches where the word of God is taught, but personally, the one who teaches it doesn't practice it. See, Ezra, notice what Ezra did. Ezra, Ezra set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it. There are two ways to teach. You teach with your lips. The second way you teach is you teach with your life. See, God had Ezra, and he had this guy, and he developed this guy for a certain time to go back and teach the law and teach the word to the people. The third leader, and if you look at the chart, right after Ezra, you got a gap of 12 years, and then Nehemiah goes. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. You see, uh, if you go to any city back then, and today when you go to Jerusalem, you go to the old city, there's a wall around it. the walls were down that meant the temple was unprotected. Uh, the wall was down and the and the gates were down. the gates of any city, the gates were the city hall. the gates were where business was transacted uh the The, the gates were the were the were the central they were the central nervous system of that community so First, the temple is rebuilt, then the Word is reestablished, and now Nehemiah is going to go back and rebuild the wall. And that's what we're going to study, because God had designed this guy, Nehemiah. These three men are different in their makeup, they're different in their temperament, they're different in their gifts. But God sovereignly worked in each of their lives. You know the interesting thing? Uh, These men were pretty obscure. This was not, uh, Israel's best days were behind them. You know, um, it's great to be a Fortune 500 company. It's great to be a Fortune 100 company. It's great to be respected and all that. But when, hey, it's just you and a small business, and you don't even have a receptionist, you got an answering machine that doesn't work half the time. See, that's kind of where Israel was. Israel used to be the top of the heap. Now, they got an answering machine. They can't get to work half the time. That's where they are. These guys were men that had lived in obscurity. These men had not been successful. But they were men that had been through the fire and prepared by God to do a certain task at a certain time. Let me tell you something about God's plan, and I'll close with this. Sometimes we look at history, and we see the big shots, and we see the big guns. And sometimes we feel that we're insignificant. We're not important. We don't count. In God's plan, in God's purpose, uh, uh, there are no extras. In in God's plan and in God's purpose, uh, there are no bit players. God has something significant for you to do. He has something significant for me to do. He's designed us with something specific in mind. But along that path, there is going to be some tests. There are going to be some disappointments. There are going to be some seasons of difficulty that are designed to refine us and make us into the leaders that he wants us to be. We're going to learn a ton from Nehemiah. But we needed to understand where he fit. After Nehemiah is done, after he does his work, there's 400 years of silence. God doesn't speak. And then guess who comes on the scene? John the Baptist, saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. All these slots of history, God has ordained. Nehemiah was a man for his time. We're living in these times. Why are we living in these times? God's got something for us to do. But he's not looking for synthetic leaders. He's looking for godly men. And that's our decision. I'm going to be at First Baptist this weekend. You know what I'm going to say to those guys? I'm going to say to them basically this. At some point, I'm going to say to them, what you guys got to decide is this. Do you want to be a Baptist or do you want to be a man of God? That's the issue. I know a lot of guys that are Baptists that are men of God, and so do you. There's a whole bunch of them. We could name a bunch of them. A lot of Baptists who are men of God, but you know as well as I do, there's a whole bunch of Baptists that aren't men of God. Right? They're just Baptists. And that's not worth a hoot, just being a Baptist. That won't get you anywhere. The issue is being a man of God. Nehemiah was a man of God, so we're going to watch him, we're going to learn from him, we're going to let him rub off on us. You guys up for this? Okay. Now, You'll take out your uh, piece of paper and a pen. We'll have a short quiz. (laughs) I won't do that to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you own history. Um, We can study it. uh, We can read what has occurred in the past. But the fact of the matter is we're the only ones that are making it today. We're the ones that are walking the earth today. Nehemiah isn't, Daniel isn't, Paul isn't, we are. Uh, You've raised us up for such a time as this. And some of us, Lord, think that uh, perhaps what we're doing is not significant, that we don't count. Uh, You said in uh, Zechariah 4 that we're not to despise the days of small things. Every man goes through times when it's not exciting. Every man goes through times where he's not well-known and where he's not successful. Things are small, things are insignificant, times where we're obscure, times where we wonder if we'll ever make a mark, times if we wonder if we will ever um, uh, make a contribution in the way that we hope to. Uh, uh, Nehemiah knew what that was like, Ezra knew what that was like, Zerubbabel knew what that was like. Some of us know what that is right now because that's right smack where we are. But, Lord, you see those days of small things, and you see our attitudes, and you see our hearts, and you see our responses. Help us, Lord, to keep our integrity. Help us to be truthful. Help us not to be liars. Help us to be honest men. When no one's looking, may we be clean before you. May we not be double-minded, and may we not live two lives. May we not be any different with people than we are in private. Those are the kind of men that we want to be. Now we've fallen short and we come to you for forgiveness and for mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. When our hearts are broken and we're genuinely repentant, you never turn us away. We come to you for cleansing and forgiveness. Encourage us this year. Make us better men. Make us better leaders, we pray. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, Thanks guys, we'll do this thing.